<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot to talk about today. The uh, head of Indivisible, Megan Hatcher-Mays, is going to drop by to talk about Senate Republicans using racist dog whistles with regard to the new nominee, Biden's new nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, which we will start in just a moment. Congressman Mark Pocan will be with us for a National Progressive Town Hall meeting, taking your calls. Ian Milheiser, attorney, a writer on legal matters, and just brilliant analyst of legal situations, is going to drop by. There's a new case coming before the Supreme Court about whether people should be allowed to discriminate against LGBTQ people because they hate the gay or whatever. And the Supreme Court has twice ruled in their favor, but very narrowly. This could be like Citizens United. This could be their opportunity to kick the doors open. We'll talk to Ian Milheiser about that. Uh, bookstore event coming up Tuesday. My new book, it's uh, out next week, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How uh, the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. On Tuesday, March 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, I'll be doing an hour-long event with Powell's Bookstore. You can register over at powells.com. It's a Zoom event. Both of these are Zoom events. They're both virtual. And then on Thursday of next week, March 10th, I'll be at Town Hall Seattle virtually at 6 p.m. Pacific time, townhallseattle.org is their website. So an awful lot going on there. To start out our program, though, I'm going to get into this President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. Megan Hatcher-Mays is on the line with us, an attorney, the director of democracy policy at Indivisible, longtime Supreme Court watcher and founder of the Unrig the Courts Coalition. Indivisible.org, uh, indivisible of course, the website. Important Megan is uh, Megan Hatcher Mays' Twitter handle. And Megan, welcome back to the program. It's, it's always great having you with us. What uh, I, I have been seeing, what I think, you know, is uh, frankly, I think radical leftist is probably <laughs> the, the catchphrase that the Republicans are, are using to say black person these days. But what are, what are you seeing in terms of the rhetoric that Republicans are going to be mobilizing against um, Kenji Jackson, uh, Brown Jackson? Yeah, it's Ketanji, bad, mostly. Me. Yeah, yeah I uh, she, the Republicans, I think, have already signaled even before she was an, formally announced as Joe Biden's nominee, they were already mobilizing to try to paint her as extremely radical or scary or things of that nature. Um, I think that folks should expect the confirmation hearings to be pretty messy. Um, you know, Josh Hawley came out and said he's going to fight wokeism and. 
fight against any nominee who, you know, is a proponent of critical race theory, stuff like that. He's just trying to score political points off of this nomination. But I think we can't expect Republicans to kind of carry on that rhetoric into the confirmation hearings. It's really unfortunate. She's um, she's a great, great pick. I'm really excited about her. Not only is she the first black woman who will ever serve on the Supreme Court in its history, but she's also the first public defender to ever serve um, on the Supreme Court. So that perspective on the bench is really sorely needed. Um, but I do expect Republicans to try to score some political points off of her uh, professional experience and also try to cut her down if they are already, again, even before she was announced, we're saying that, you know, this nominee wasn't intelligent enough. She was a diversity pick, really offensive stuff. And so um, right. I think they're probably going to go after her. Oh, you had Ted Cruz come out. Whistle types of things. Ted yeah. Cruz came out and said it should be illegal to say that you're going to pick a mm -hmm. black woman. I mean, you know, this is this is like off the off the edge of the bridge here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, where where do we? What, well, actually, let me let me back up a little bit. How do you think that the strategy, the Republican strategy, is going to play out? Is it just going to be Sturm and Drang? I mean, you're you're going to have a few guys, a few people out there, you know, yelling and screaming about wokeism. And by the way, what I'm, I'm curious what you think wokeism means when Republicans <laughs> use that word. Um, uh, but you're going to have them yelling and screaming about that and, 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 and whatnot. And then it's just going to fade into the background because, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell blew up the filibuster with regard to uh, Supreme Court justices. Or are you expecting that there might be some Democrats uh, like Joe Manchin, who sat with the Republicans last night, who might throw a monkey wrench into this thing? So I don't think that Demo any Democrats will. So far, um, we haven't lost a single Democratic vote on one of Joe Biden's judicial nominees. Now, this is a little bit different. It's more high profile than some of the lower court nominees that Joe Biden has put forward. But Ketanji Brown Jackson has been um, confirmed by the Senate multiple times over the course of her career, most recently last June, to her current position on the D.C. Circuit. And she was confirmed with bipartisan support. So nothing has changed. Uh, she's somehow been radicalized over the last 10 months. I guess we'll find out at her confirmation hearing, but I don't think anything has changed. So there's no reason why those same Republicans shouldn't vote for her um, when her uh, nomination goes to the Senate floor for a full vote. I think what we'll see in committee is a lot of Republicans who are interested in running for president in 2024 trying to score political points. And they saw that in the Virginia governor's race, the CRT panic seems to be a winning strategy. So I think that's what that's rooted in. It's not anything real. Um, and to answer your other question about wokeism, uh, to Republicans, that doesn't mean anything. I think they've said straight out, out of the gate that um, their plan was to take a phrase like wokeism or critical race theory, strip it of all of its meaning, what it actually means, and then just use it as kind of a helpful bucket to fill in all of voters' sort of uh, fears about education or domestic issues or whatever. And they've been very successful because now nobody actually knows what critical race theory or wokeism actually is. And when they hear that phrase, they think it's something scary, even though it's not. So, so it's, that's what they're hoping to bring up at this hearing um, and later this month. So it's their their latest version of social justice warrior or exactly. liberal or pointy headed liberal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Um, you are the uh, director of the Democracy Policy Program at Indivisible. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the state of our democracy right now? And and what, uh, you know, for people who might not be familiar with Indivisible, who might not have gone over to Indivisible.org and signed up to get on your mailing list and uh, or email list and, and uh, even join you in a lot of the really cool stuff you're doing, 
we're, we're coming, we're in right now a, a primary election season. In fact, Texas just finished the, the first primary of the season. Um, and we're heading toward a, a national election here in November. Um, what are you guys up to? Yeah, so we had a difficult loss at the start of January. So the Senate finally voted on this suite of democracy reforms. It was called the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. They had put those two bills together, and ultimately that failed, not because it was lacking support, but because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema didn't want to get rid of the filibuster to save our democracy, which means the current state of our democracy is it's in pretty rough shape. Um, those provisions would have gone a long way toward protecting the right to vote, to making sure our elections were secure and run well, that vote by mail was easily accessible. It would have made election day a holiday, but that did not pass and it won't pass the Senate unless, uh, I don't know, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema see the light sometime between now and the end of the year, but I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Um, but what that does mean is that we need to be working really hard this year to make sure we're electing better Democrats to the House and to the Senate so that we can actually get some of this stuff passed. The stuff that has been held up in the Senate, not by Republicans necessarily, but by Democrats, by Manchin and Cinema, is really popular and it's really critical to a functioning democracy. So that's what we're working on this year. For the rest of the year, we'll be um, trying to do our best to, to keep an eye on um, primaries, midterm, uh, midterm movement, and to make sure that we are going into 2023 with a really solid Congress so that we can actually get some stuff done. I know uh, you folks at uh, democracy, uh, excuse me, at uh, indivisible.org are, you know, laser focused on elections around the country. Um, what's your sense of our chances of holding the House and expanding the Senate by more than two votes so that we can get around, um, you know, cinema being bought off by big pharma and right wing billionaires and Manchin just doing his uh, frankly, he uh, he's behaving like he's planning to switch parties like the governor of West Virginia did a couple of years ago. Um, wh what are your prognostications, uh, you know, best and worst case? Yeah, well, historically, you know, the party in power loses seats in Congress. And so I think we need to be ready for that eventuality. We need to keep keep up the fight over the summer to make sure that we're in the best position possible heading into November. I think it is possible there are more friendly um, seats to Democrats on the map for the Senate. It's just, it's a bit of a challenge timing wise because um, Democrats don't tend to vote as strongly in midterm elections as uh, other folks do. So um, even though things look very good in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, it's still, we can't really count our, uh, our chickens before they hatch. So yeah. it's just gonna require a lot of work if we wanna kind of buck the historical trend of um, of losing seats in Congress, and so hopefully we can keep keep up the momentum. Well, the let's do that work. Get over to <laughs> indivisible.org and sign up to volunteer and help out. Megan Hatcher Mays. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Thanks, you too. Morris, listening on KPFK in Long Beach. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, todo está bien hoy. All right, Professor, I want to share something with you. Uh, racism. Anytime you're talking about racism, the messaging is going to always be subliminal. They're not going to come out with the ethnic slurs. It'll always be a subliminal messaging with a spirited tone, mean-spirited normally, like you find with, with Tucker Carlson. Uh, and, you know, also I want to remind folks of something that uh, my favorite president, I know he's a cracker, but he was my cracker. His name was Lyndon Baines Johnson. And he once said that if you can convince the lowest white man that he is better than the highest black man, 
then he will allow you to pick his pocket. And, and we see that today with corporations not having to pay any taxes. We need a progressive income tax. We don't have one. But folks are concerned about that because they're distracted, you know, with this, this bigotry stuff. Yep. And um, I'm sure you remember your boy, Edward Said. Edward Said, the road orientalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you were familiar with Daniel and Paul's Doctrine of Discovery. Now, the reason why those are important, because it's not enough for me to just blame white people for being sadistic and all that other stuff. Where does that come from? And now when we find out where things come from, then, then we can go ahead and address the issue. And I got a candidate for the Supreme Court, a black woman that Tucker Carlson would love to have, Tom Harbin. And guess who that is? I don't know. Who? Candace Owens. Thank you very much, my brother. <laughs> okay. You think he, uh, you're being tongue-in-cheek, right, Morris? Yeah, Morris is gone. Okay, I'm guessing Morris is being tongue-in-cheek. David in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, got a few things to say. First of all, it occurred to me the other day, thinking back to the days of Newt Gingrich, I formulated a principle, and that has not let me down since, and that is whatever the Republicans accuse you of, you can bet the farm they're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Second of all, as far as the whole thing about fascism, I'd like to say that there was allegedly back in the 30s, either Mussolini or his chief advisor, who were the guys that developed fascism, said, instead of fascism, we should call it corporatism because it's a combination of state and corporate power. Right. I believe that was Giovanni Gentile, who was Mussolini's right-hand man and speechwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, and I'm wondering why people have this, you know, are so extreme, especially with the Republicans. And I'm going in my personal situation. They do studies, by the way, of levels of satisfaction with life in different countries. And over the years, everyone I've seen, the United States is like 27th down on the list. Yep. Yep. Well, I'll put a little bit of my own personal situation in there. Like, I'm a retired teacher, so I'm living on the teacher's pension and Social Security, and fortunately, my wife and I, we're in a pretty good situation. We really are. And the pension and Social Security really has us living a comfortable, middle-class life. But why is it? But at the same time, I often wonder, especially this time of year with tax time coming up, right? How come I pay a far higher tax rate than Amazon with over a billion and a half dollars in profit? Or, or any Jeff other Bezos, who owns Amazon. I pay a higher <laughs> tax rate on a teacher's pension than a billion dollar profit making corporation. Yeah. Or why are you paying taxes at all on your Social Security? I mean, prior to Reagan slapping an income tax on Social Security, Social Security was tax-free right up until 1983. And it ought to be. Yeah, it should be again. I agree. I think pensions should be tax-free, too. I don't know if there was a time in, in the past when they were. I'm not that much of a pension expert or wonk. But I know that Social Security income was tax-free. I know that unemployment income was tax-free. And I believe that they're taxing that in some states, maybe the, maybe federally. I don't know. Um, so but- anyway, there's this fear of socialism. And frankly, I mean, from what I've seen, the evil spirit of the original Joe McCarthy, not the guy in Congress now, but the evil spirit of the original Joe McCarthy is alive and functioning in the Republican Party. Oh, yeah. Always has been. It's that, that, and, that and, fascist and, thing. And so instead of calling it, uh, I don't know, 
what it really is, what I call capitalism under the golden rule. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the rule of gold, actually. Yes. Ian Milheiser is up next. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Supreme Court has twice now ruled that you have the legal right to discriminate against LGBTQ people if you do so on fairly narrow grounds. And they've got another case coming before them now uh, that they've just uh, have decided to take that might blow that wide open or might maintain a narrow corridor. I'm not really sure what to make of it. Um, so I wanted to get on, you know, uh, one of the real legal geniuses in our country, Ian Milheiser. Uh, he's a senior correspondent for Vox. He's author of The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. Vox.com, of course, the website, and uh, I, Milheiser, I-M-I-L-L-H-I-S-E-R is his Twitter handle. Uh, Ian, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. It's, it's great to have you with us again. Tell us about this this uh, case and give us a little back background to the two cases that preceded it, please. Sure. So there have been several cases that have come before the Supreme Court involving religious parties who have some sort of religious objection to LGBT people and claim that they have a constitutional right to discriminate against them. 
Um, the first case was the Masterpiece Cake Shop case involved a baker refused to bake cakes for same-sex weddings. And the second was a case called Fulton that involved a charity that contracted with the city of Philadelphia to provide certain foster care services. And the um, charity refused to place children with LGBT families, um, or I believe with same-sex couples. And in both cases, the Supreme Court said, yep, you have a constitutional right to discriminate in those cases. But they did so on really narrow grounds that didn't necessarily have very many implications for future cases. Um, This new case is called 303 Creative. And it involves a web designer who actually has never designed a wedding website before, but she claims that she would like to, but only if she's allowed to only provide her services to opposite sex couples. So if she's never done this before, this is not a real issue. This sounds like a setup, like one of those cases that, that they basically manufacture to get it before the court. Yeah, it, it does sound a lot like a setup. I mean, I and, you know, there is a plausible argument because this woman has not actually done the thing that she wants to do. And it's unclear whether she will ever do it, um, that she might have the legal term is standing. The, the, the court may right. not have jurisdiction to hear this. if This is a setup. That said, I mean, I think that the justices had to be aware that there was this problem with this case. They decided to take the case anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think it's unlikely that they're going to dismiss the case on any kind of jurisdictional grounds, because why would they have picked this particular case if that was their plan? Right. Yeah. But anyway, so the case involves this woman. She's a web designer, once discriminated against same-sex couples. And what makes the case a little interesting is that she's she's not really, or at least the Supreme Court is not going to decide whether her religion specifically gives her a right to, to discriminate. The Supreme Court is, is framed it as a free speech case. The idea is, well, you're designing websites. You know, websites are a form of speech, and so you should be allowed to say what you want, not say what you, what, what, what you don't want, and therefore your free speech rights, this woman's free speech rights, overcomes the state civil rights law, which says that there can't be discrimination against LGBT. Hang, hang on just a second. She's not, I mean, she's designing the website, but it, it's not her words on the website. I, 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 you know, I, I get it that she wants to stifle the speech of the people for whom she's designing the website. But, right. I, you know, are, is, is this constructed just around her artistic content? Is that, the, is that the limit of her speech in this case? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the theories, that she is engaged in some sort of artistic speech-related work, and therefore the full First Amendment applies with full force here, and anything that limits how she uses her voice on these websites is, um, is unconstitutional. Right. Um, and basically what makes this case difficult is that there's a line drawing problem here. So like, I think we can all imagine a situation where we would agree that, you know, the First Amendment does protect people's rights to engage in hate speech and involve their their rights to engage in certain speech that I think you and I would find repugnant. So if, if like Congress passed a law or state passed a law saying that you're just not allowed to give a speech that opposes LGBT rights, that would be unconstitutional. You can imagine a law that interferes with if someone has a particular livelihood where they say anti-LGBT things, where that would also be protected by the First Amendment. So, you know, if I were a preacher 
and it was my job to give preach sermons and I wanted to preach an LGBT sermon, that would be protected by the First Amendment, even if the words of that sermon were repugnant. But the problem is that there's just a lot of people who do artistic or speech related work, and it's not clear at all where to draw the line. You know, this came up to a certain extent in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And you had questions about like, well, a hairdresser can do creative work. Does that mean that a hairdresser is protected by the First Amendment? You know, a makeup artist who like, you know, if if someone wants to hire a makeup artist for their wedding, could the makeup artist say, no, I'm not going to do same sex weddings because I am an artist. And because I am an artist, I, you know, and, and so that's where the problem is, is that there has to be a line. I mean, I, I, like we all I think everyone would agree that like a preacher is allowed to say what they want in their sermons. And I think at least all reasonable people would agree that a hairdresser is not engaged in First Amendment protected speech. And this case is somewhere in that middle ground. Um, you know, what worries me about the case is that we have such a conservative Supreme Court that I don't know that they will draw a fair line. I mean, this court very well could say that hairdressers are protected by the First Amendment and therefore can um, ignore civil rights laws if they want. You know, with Citizens United, there was this very narrow case that was brought before the court about uh, the law that said that 90 days before an election, you can't uh, go out and engage in electioneering without considering it a contribution to a candidate, to a campaign. Uh, the justices told the, the the people from Citizens United to come back with a larger case, you know, uh, make this bigger so that we can, right. you know, expand this. Do you, uh, you know, much to the detriment, frankly, in my opinion, of American democracy, uh, do you see something, the possibility of something like that happening here? Or do you think that this is going to be narrowly decided? Um, and if, if it, in either case, if the justices decide that artists just like authors or just like, uh, you know, uh, whatever, have the, have the right to uh, discriminate, at least in their speech, to, to, to yeah. that hate speech goes beyond just speech. It, it goes into behavior. Um, how does that impact the rest of the country? How do, you know, does that set up something much larger than just uh, the open discrimination against gay people? Um, would it uh, allow then discrimination against people based on race, for example, right. or on religion? I mean, how bad could this get? Yeah, I mean, so I think the worst case scenario. So I think the court probably will not allow race discrimination. This came up in in the Hobby Lobby case, you may remember, which was the case about whether religion allows businesses to deny birth control coverage in their health plans. And there was a line in Justice Alito's opinion in Hobby Lobby, which said, look, if this were a race discrimination case, we agree that there's a compelling interest in protecting race, preventing race discrimination. So we're not allow that. But the thing that strikes me about that language in Hobby Lobby is it only said that about race discrimination. It did not say that about gender discrimination. It didn't say it about discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So I think like the worst case scenario here is that the Supreme Court could say, if you're involved in a creative field, you can violate any civil rights law you want so long as it's not a race discrimination that you engage in. So you can discriminate against women, you can discriminate against gay people, you can discriminate against, you know, any other protected group, just you can't discriminate on the basis of race. So that's, I think, one worst case scenario. The other, you know, aspect of what would be the worst case scenario is, again, essentially what the plain, what this case is about is if you are engaged in artistic work, 
just how artistic does that work need to be if you are before the First Amendment applies? So, again, like if I was if I am a painter and the government tried to order me to paint a particular painting like that would be protected by the First Amendment. But there's just lots of people who do artistic work, you, 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 you know, it, a chef does. You know, there's a lot of artists, architect, an architect. You know, you know, or to use the examples I used before, a hairdresser or a right. makeup artist. You know, right. there's a lot of discretionary artistic work there. And I, and I don't want to deny that. But I think intuitively we understand that a chef does different kind of work than a painter or a preacher or, you know, someone where we're, very- we're essentially drawing the line here between and forgive my interruption, but yeah. I see that I've got a break coming here soon. Um, we're essentially drawing the line between basically uh, creating content that is an expression of an opinion or a thought yes. versus simply engaging in pay for services behavior. Exactly. That that is exactly the line that I that that I that I'm trying to draw here. And I mean, I do think that this is a harder case because you know websites do convey a message. You know, websites have something in common with the painter or the preacher, mm. but they also have something in common with you know the chef or the makeup artist because you know it's not like the purpose of a wedding website is to express a political view. You know, the the purpose of a, of a wedding website is to say, hey, like we're getting married. Here's our gift. Ready. Well, although um, it could be, I mean, you know, you could have you could have a couple that wants their entire website to be covered in swastikas for their wedding because they're just like so into it. Yeah. And, you know, and if that were the case, like, I mean, it would be bizarre to think that Nazis have more protections than people. But, you know, if you're using your wedding website to express a political view, that's one thing. You know, if you know, if when I had gotten married, my wife and I had said like, had decided to say, hey, we're getting married and vote for Hillary Clinton. Like that, that would be one thing. But I don't understand that that's what this woman wants to do. She just wants to create normal wedding websites. Right. Right. It's it's a fascinating case. Absolutely fascinating case. Ian Milheiser. Ian, thanks for giving us the, you know, a well-rounded understanding of this. Well, by the way, when's this when's this going to be heard? Probably in the fall, um, okay. so not this Supreme Court term, which will end in late June, but right. probably the next term. Okay, and then we'll probably see the result in the spring, right? Most likely, yeah. Most okay. likely the next June after that. Ian, thanks a lot for dropping by. Great talking. Right, thank you. You can find Ian's writings over at Vox.com. Craig in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hey, Craig, what's up? I watched the uh, entire State of the Union, and I thought it was fantastic on so many levels. And then uh, I'm an Iowan, so I stepped by and listened in the next room to uh, what we call her, some of us call her COVID Kim because of her uh, performance during the whole pandemic. COVID Kim. And um, in fact, in yesterday's news, um, the state auditor here uh, insisted again that she return nearly $450,000 in COVID relief funds to the government because she used it to pay for 21 staff members for three months in, um, I think it was 2020, yeah. Wow. Um, So, you know, she puts off this, like so many of these Iowa, some of these prominent Iowa Republicans, this, aw, shucks, I've got the Iowa nice thing going. Mm -hmm. But seriously, they are just, they're like one of the worst Republican governors. You know, they just don't say the stupid stuff, but they Mm -hmm. do things that are just as bad. In other words, she's just a paler version or a weaker version of Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes, I am. And, and, but w- the one thing I wanted to point out was her pleasant enough tone. She tried to knock Biden and the Democrats mm. on what I would call people who serve the country. I mean, like, near the end of her speech, she talked about police and how she said some prominent Democrats have called for defunding the police. Well, in that very speech, the president said, I don't want to defund the police. Right. I, you know, he's, and we've talked about restructuring and reprioritizing and listening to protesters. I mean, you had police during the time of the protest, the big protest, who took a knee with protesters because they knew that things weren't right. And then on immigration, she said that neither the president or the vice president had been to the border even, which is not true. Harris was there yep. last year. And uh, you don't have to be there every day to do something. Right. And then finally, she talked about our military. First of all, she didn't even mention Excuse Ukraine, me. did not speak the word. But mm-hmm. she, she did say that our military is the least prepared that it's been in ages or whatever. This is just I which mean, is utter just, nonsense. Uh, Oh, my gosh, it was horrible. And I hope I'm speaking for most Iowans when I say this stuff. Yeah, I I hope you are, too, Craig. But uh, the elections will 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 find that out. Um, Fox News was apparently fawning all over her. Craig, thank you for the call. Yeah. (laughs) Bizarre times we live in. We'll continue our conversation on the other side of this break. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations, big pharma and big oil would really rather you didn't know all about. And you generally won't hear about on the mainstream media. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us, member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website is pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He's on the Appropriations, Education, and Labor Committees in the House. And uh, Congressman, welcome back to the program. I, I, I have two quick questions for you in addition to whatever you want to talk about. But first, I, I wanted to uh, offer our condolences. I, I understand your mother passed away a couple of days ago. 
and just you know let you know that we're thinking of you and your family. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate that. Um, my questions are, the, the January 6th committee says that it has uh, evidence showing Donald Trump committed crimes. This is the first time that an official body has used the word crime and the word Trump in the same sentence, you know, outside of a, of a prosecutor, or at least the first time, is, to the best of my knowledge, the January 6th committee has. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, and I'm also wondering your thoughts on this report that is uh, just going viral right now around the internet that uh, our intel agencies are saying that uh, the Russians are planning public executions of Ukrainian politicians once they seize, uh, you know, seize the country. Well, it's great to be with you, Tom. And again, thanks for the kind words about my mother. She was 93. She just turned 93. But very quickly, the combination of COVID and pneumonia and sepsis all kind of found out within, you know, I think eight to maybe at most 10 hours, everything happened. So it's been a little bit of a whirlwind week in uh, D.C., kind of flying there and back. You know, I'm in Wisconsin now. Also, I was with the president on Air Force One to Wisconsin, uh, where he was in Superior talking about um, some of the infrastructure uh, Act so, uh, it's it's been a lot, and I got to admit I haven't had a lot of sleep. So I'm, I'm going to apologize up front to your listeners. Uh, on the one six commission, I think what we're realizing is they're coming to the end of their work, right? And they're starting to have seen a lot of dots and connected enough that they think they've got some things they can really share with the public that I think will be significant. And while I haven't seen any of it directly, I do know that that's exactly what they've been doing is working to the culmination uh, of everything. So um, yeah, it will be very interesting to see when they have hearings, what all that means. To the other point, you know, I have to admit, this is one where I think Pramila Jayapal and I were walking together to the uh, first uh, intelligence briefing we had on, on what was going on with Russia and Ukraine. And it was interesting because, you know, it was our intelligence community had pretty much everything right that has transpired. Despite all the denials of Russia and everything that was happening, everything they said uh, turned out to be very true. This most recent, if it turns out to be true, it very likely could, given this, you know, what the success of their intelligence has been. But, you know, I think Vladimir Putin's not winning on this one. You know, there's protests within Russia. Thousands of people have been jailed in Russia over those protests. Uh, I think the Ukrainian president has, has made himself a hero that we all wish we had in other countries as leaders, uh, I think, in many ways, and, and shown that the Ukrainian people are going to fight for their country. And, uh, you know, right now, uh, Joe Biden, uh, fortunately, has been very strong in saying we're not putting troops in there. Uh, we're not going to get involved that way. But the sanctions are something that is putting a squeeze really more on Putin and his his you know, oligarch friends that should have some influence on, on you know Vladimir Putin. So, you know, I, I know this is far from being done and far from being written, but uh, so far, uh, what the intelligence community has told us has largely come true. And, you know, I think it, it has been, you know, it shows that it, Russia really has been extremely disingenuous at almost every step. Yeah. Yeah. It's astonishing. Before we pick up calls, anything that you wanted to share with anybody about what's going on, you know, work that you're doing, things that we should be paying attention to politically? You know, I, I think the biggest thing for us is, you know, the State of the Union, I, I think, really went well. Um, mm. You had someone who gave rational competence, which I think uh, is what we need right now. Um, we really are turning the corner, I believe, on COVID. And hopefully that means turning the corner on some of the inflationary pressures that we've seen. And if we can get to the point that we can talk about what we've done for the American people in the last couple of years, from the American Rescue Plan that put money in people's pockets and shots in people's arms, kids back into school safely, people into jobs, 
and the infrastructure bill that I was with the president in Wisconsin, in Superior, Wisconsin, the very top of the state. Uh, I think it was 10 degrees when we landed, or we, or when we maybe when we took off, in uh, a lot of snow on the ground. Um, but you know, there's a bridge that connects Wisconsin and Minnesota. That's a billion-dollar project that is part of that infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, we've heard presidents and administrations talk about infrastructure, infrastructure day, infrastructure week. Well, now we have an infrastructure decade, as the president said. We actually have money and resources to do that. And I, I think, you know, when people really get a chance to look at what Joe Biden has done and what the Democrats have done in the House and Senate, knowing we have much more to do with very tight margins, I think we've got a good case to make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was a, a great speech. I, and, and uh, you know, his struggle with his stutter notwithstanding, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So let's pick up some phone calls here. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hello, Representative. Thanks for uh, doing this. It's a great service. I wondered why uh, Biden didn't mention nuclear arms talks at the SALT Treaty and also limiting nuclear weapons. And the problem right now is that uh, there's a lot of nuclear power plants in jeopardy, and uh, we need to face facts on this. You mean in Ukraine? Okay, Congressman. Yeah, well, I think, David, one thing, and it was interesting, you know, we had a chance to talk to the president on the flight to Wisconsin. In fact, he said, you know, his speechwriter told us, yeah, we, you know, we, don't worry, this speech will be shorter today. And I don't think he gave a, a real long speech, but it was a little longer than perhaps they intended. I think it's always hard to know what gets covered and what doesn't, right? Because what's the right length uh, of a speech? But it, your points are, are well taken as far as in the Ukraine, especially with Vladimir Putin, you know, threatening uh, all options are open, including nuclear. Um, I think there's back channel conversations happening between militaries that uh, perhaps are making sure that nothing um, may happen uh, that that shouldn't, because clearly nothing should happen in this area. But, you know, I I think there's a lot of things. You know, people wanted to hear more about climate change. People wanted to hear more about a lot of subjects. But there's only so much you can do in one of those speeches. And I think he had to address two things. Um, Well, three things, really. One, uh, he had to address what was going on in Ukraine and Russia. And I think he did a great job on that and unified people um, uh, on that in the beginning of the speech. Two, he had addressed, I think, the the issues of COVID and inflation, because those are the two uh, biggest issues I think people are talking about right now that seem to stop us from having other conversations. And then three, he had to lay out an agenda, what he still wants to get done and what we need to do and talk a little bit about what we've done. And uh, again, that's a lot already in that amount of time. So I I don't necessarily say, you know, he didn't do it because this reason or that. It probably was more of a time issue. But you uh, bring up a very valid point that I know is being looked at. Yeah. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. And uh, let me just say, I know you you made your mom proud. Uh, the two gifts we give parents is what who we become and how we decide to make the world better. And uh, I'm sure she saw that in you. Well, thank you very uh, much, Pam. Wanted, yes, I just wanted to express that. I wanted to also ask about Ukraine. But before that, can I please say that we need Democratic elected officials, you all need to do something different with messaging. It has to be more specific. Biden's State of the Union, he should have went into more details about voter suppression and subversion. He should have talked about people shouldn't wait in line five, six, seven, eight hours. I think that has to be more specific. And also, he should have mentioned January the 6th. I don't know why he didn't. So my question for you Congressman, as it relates to Ukraine, because we're seeing them just be bombarded. They were asked or there was the agreement for them to denuclearize. 
had they kept their nuclear weapons, would we see Putin attacking them? And I'm just thinking, how can we ask, I guess, growing countries to do this, and they have no protection or no defense? And so I'm just asking, was that a big mistake? And where we are now, are we just going to wait till they, Russia and Putin totally just demolishes Ukraine, and then, and then what? Yeah, Pam, you raise good points. However, I, I do disagree on the nuclear issue. I don't think uh, nuclear weapons are ever in anyone's best interest. If you use nuclear weapons, uh, everyone is a loser. So I want to eliminate more and more nuclear weapons, including the U.S. arsenal of nuclear weapons. We don't need as many as we have. Um, and uh, I, I don't think uh, if they had nuclear weapons and they had the ability to use them, that would change much. In fact, it might then put those weapons in jeopardy. And um, it, it could be very, uh, it works much worse than it is. I, I think that the right now, by doing the very targeted sanctions that we're doing, we're doing our best not to hurt the Russian people as much as the Russian oligarchs, you know, the, the friends of Vladimir Putin. I think from what we're hearing, we're having a good impact on that. Also, uh, we knew all along this wasn't a cakewalk. You know, the Ukrainian people are proud and, and they're fighting back and, and we're able to, you know, have the allies around the country uh, supporting their efforts and, and much to their credit. I, I think all the videos that have come out of there, you know, people have looked at, the, looked at Ukraine with a very, uh, I think, positive light. And uh, we need to make sure that someone like Vladimir Vladimir Putin, or for that matter, Donald Trump, uh, never can be the kind of uh, strong man that they are. And uh, you know, our, my real hope is that the Russian people will decide uh, this is in the is not in their interest. You know, we watched the Russian stock market go down, and and that is going to have some impact. Unfortunately, for people, we saw the lack of availability for cash. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is Vladimir Putin's problem. I don't think there's an issue about if they had nuclear weapons, this wouldn't happen. And in fact, I would argue we need to get rid of even more nuclear weapons across the planet. Kirk in Lakeland, Florida, listening to WMNF. You are on the air with Representative Pocan. Congressman Pocan and Tom, thank you so much for taking my call and the time today. I, uh, I'm frustrated. I live in Florida. What's happened is that uh, I was just reading the legislation uh, about the initiative in the House to try to kill solar incentives. Essentially, I'm also asking the question, to the previous caller's point, I was looking at a another document from the military called the it's not strategic defense initiative it's a it's another uh term but what it, what it was the proposed military budget and it made clear that the priorities would be covid russia and clean energy uh to have a uh, a safe uh infrastructure and in my mind this is my ninety thousand dollar investment on my home because i have you know, I have power bills that are going up. I invested in a Kirk, what's car. your question? My, my question really is, what can be done on a more progressive level to in this national policy to address these things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of your problem is very uniquely, unfortunately, Kirk, you live in Florida and you've got a governor who wants to out Donald Trump, Donald Trump, and be ready to run for president. I, I watched the embarrassing video of him with some university students where he belittled them for wearing masks. You know, he's a punk. I mean, really, that's the only thing I can call him. I, I knew him when he was in Congress. I thought he was a backbencher and, and somehow this backbencher got lucky and, and you know, uh, 
is now governor of Florida, but between his you can't say gay bill, which is, you know, dumb and discriminatory, to his taking away any action, uh, as you're mentioning, on solar credits, which is, uh, again, stupid, but he's doing it for political, you know, scoring points with the, the right base. You guys just got to change some of your political leaders, which means I think you've got some internal work to do in Florida. You are a swing state, but, you know, Ron DeSantis is desperate to get on the national stage, and uh, he's going to continue doing these completely idiotic moves if it helps him and he doesn't give a damn about anyone who lives in Florida. So, you know, at the federal level, I can tell you, we are trying to keep all the tax credits for solar. That was part of what was in Build Back Better and I think will still happen. We'll be able to continue those at the end of the day, but it's going to be a fight. We'll have trade-offs, unfortunately, with Republicans due to the numbers we have in the Senate. But, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is fights you're going to have to have in your own state. And it's not just Florida. There's other states doing equally dumb things. Richard in Palm Springs, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Congressman. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I have a question about Congress's power, and it's kind of two parts. First of all, have you taken back the power to declare war? And why don't you take back or enforce your power to put people in jail that don't comply with subpoenas like you used to? That's all I have. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I can address the first one, uh, hopefully a little bit easier. You know, we recently sent a letter, a number of us, myself included, to the president saying, look, you, before you send any troops, if you're going to send any troops, you have to go to Congress, because that's what the Constitution says. And the thing is, he's not sending any troops, and I think he got that message. But what we haven't done yet is get rid of that very loose authorization to go uh, into war from 9-11. And because of that, uh, you know, one could argue we give the president, uh, any president, way too much latitude that goes around the Constitution. And that's something we still need to do. For a while, we had bipartisan support. We actually knocked it out of appropriations with almost a unanimous vote, and then Paul Ryan stopped it. And since then, we've had a few other issues, especially on the Republican side, getting this done. Um, uh, to the second question, this is where I'm going to have to apologize already. Um, I, I forgot what it was. Oh, I, uh, is Congress going to start putting people in jail for ignoring oh, subpoenas? gotcha. You know, I think the, the, the route is still trying to use the Department of Justice because that's the most direct route out, but I understand the point the caller has. I wish we could enforce it in a much stronger way. Thank you. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back, Congressman Mark Pocan, taking your calls. Anne-Marie in Tucson, Arizona, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Good morning, Representative Pocan. I was reading last night an um, article from Newsweek about the involvement of Eric Prince in Ukraine. And I wonder what you may think the importance of this connection is to Putin's desire for invasion there. Uh, when he claims that the quote-unquote Nazis are 
trying to establish themselves in Ukraine? Is it perhaps that he's recognizing this mercenary company based in the United States? Yeah, well, Anne-Marie, thanks for your, your uh, question. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I think it's rhetoric uh, and rhetoric alone that Vladimir Putin's doing. We've gotten, you know, a lot of intelligence coming into this. And, yeah, I think he's just going to say whatever he was going to say in order to have a justification for going in. And fortunately, we were able to expose him ahead of time, which makes, you know, his argument all the less valid. However, uh, you know, you bring up a real good point. I mean, I, I am someone who thinks these companies that are essentially mercenaries out there are nothing but... But a, a, a pox on, on, on you know, uh, the entire system. And, and any time uh, you have these private contract uh, military-type firms involved, I think it's a bad thing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, all too often, uh, they, they find places like this because they can parasitically uh, try to, to have some influence and have some power. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's not what Vladimir Putin was talking about. Uh, Vladimir Putin was just putting out lies to justify uh, trying to go in and steal territory. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, it should be a concern. Tony in Chicago, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hi, good afternoon. It was Eisenhower who warned about the military industrial complex. The military industrial complex is behind the expansion of NATO, which since World War II has, has doubled. George Bush and Germany swore to Soviet Union, we won't move one inch east, but it's almost doubled. This is the cause and effect here. They have no concern about diplomacy, and, and, and in, in the result, they're causing this. Put, your shoe, uh, put yourself in, in Putin's shoes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Congressman? Yeah. I, you know, I, Tony, if I really thought this was the reason why Vladimir Putin was doing this, I would understand it. And I, But I don't, unfortunately. I think he's just trying to bring back the band, so to speak, bringing back all the former uh, parts of the Soviet Union. And, and it's more about that than anything else. Don't forget, this is a guy sitting on potentially up to a trillion dollars um, who is, is not in any way the friend of, of democracy or friend of, of people of, of, of Russia or any other country. So, um, you know, while all those things could possibly be true in different situations, uh, in this situation, I think we've got a guy who's pretty much a tyrant, an oligarch, uh, who uh, clearly still has the respect of Donald Trump doing a lot of bad things. And uh, I, I'm going to remember that. I'm just glad that we're not sending troops in at this point. That's not something we should be doing. Uh, we don't want to escalate the situation. We do have to solve this diplomatically. And I hope that we'll be able to bring Putin to the table to do that by going after his rich oligarch friends. But, I think that is a good strategy. Yeah, and Putin also said last week in his speech that it wasn't about NATO. I mean, that's that's yeah. just a lie. He said it was because uh, he doesn't think that Ukraine is actually a country. It's part of Russia, and he's simply reclaiming it. Band. Yeah, exactly. Put the band back together. Will in Salem, Oregon. Quick question for Congressman Pocan, Will. Yeah, I, I do. Hi, Tom. Hi, uh, hi Representative Pocan. Student loan debt. 50 million Americans, right, all can vote have student loan debt, would it not be, from a purely political point of view, in the, in the Democrats' best interest to cancel that student loan debt, to get those people out saying, yay, let's get more Democrats elected 
and save this coming midterm massacre? That's my question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Will. Uh, in fact, I think we've requested that a number of times. One of the strategies right now for the Progressive Caucus, because of the what's happening with Build Back Better, not moving as much as we needed to through the Senate to actually make it a law. We're recommending a lot of executive orders out of the, the, the White House. Um, there's a lot of things that were in Build Back Better and other ideas that should happen. And if we're gonna have no change on the filibuster, we've gotta see, even if it's temporary action, because that's what executive order would ultimately be. And one of those is, is taking care of student loans. Congressman, in our last uh, 20, 30 seconds, what should we keep our eye on? Well, I think next week, potentially, if we have this omnibus bill, you know, we have to fund government, but I think, unfortunately, there's going to be some things we don't like as well uh, because of how the Senate is going to come back with the bill for what we had passed out of the House. But that is important because it's got a lot of important funding under Democrats for things like housing and health care and other issues. We've got to get past that. And then we've got to really try to, as the president said, get some of his agenda still done. Those are all good items for the people. That's why the Progressive Caucus had his back and Build Back Better. We have to figure out how to get uh, a number of things done, whether executive order or other ways. There you go. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for the great work you're doing in Congress and for coming on this program regularly to share it with everybody. A lot of your colleagues are not as courageous as you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Your, your audience is always great. I agree. <laughs> thank you, Congressman. Our book today is Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President by Kathleen Hall Jamison. This is from the introduction. Imagine a strategy memo forecasting cyber attacks by Russian hackers, trolls, and bots designed to royal social discontent and damage the electoral process of a major party U.S. presidential nominee. Or, if she winds up winning, sabotage her ability to govern. Guaranteed payoff, no fingerprints, no keystroke record, no contrails in the cloud. To ensure that Americans would believe that disparaging messages about her were made in the U.S., use Bitcoin to buy space and set up virtual private networks on American servers. Distribute hacked content stolen from the accounts of her staff and associates through an intermediary, WikiLeaks. Use identity theft, stolen social security numbers, and appropriated IDs to circumvent Facebook and PayPal's demand for actual names, birth dates, and addresses. On platforms such as Instagram and Twitter, register under assumed names. Diffuse and amplify your attack and advocacy through posts on Facebook, tweets and retweets on Twitter, videos on YouTube, reporting and commentary on RT, blogging on Tumblr, news sharing on Reddit, and viral memes and jokes on 9gag. Add to the mix a video game called Hiltendo, in which a missile-trading Clinton figure vaporizes classified emails sought by the FBI. Employ online agitators and bots to upvote posts from imposter websites such as blackmattersus.com to the top of such subreddits as r slash thedonald and r slash hillary for prison. Drive content to trend. To maximize the impact of your handiwork, use data analytics and search engine maximization tools built into social media platforms. To test and fuel doubts about the security of U.S. voter information, hack the electoral systems of the states. And throughout the primary and general election season, seed the notion that if Hillary Clinton were to win, she would have done so by rigging the election, an outcome that would repay her assaults on the legitimacy of their leader's presidency with doubts about her own. Were she instead to lose, she would no longer be a thistle in the toned torso of the hackers and trolls boss's likely boss. Every result but one produces a desirable outcome for the Kremlin. Outcome one, Clinton is off the international stage. 
Outcome two, she wins but can't govern effectively. Outcome three, the former Secretary of State is elected and the country simply moves on, but the sabotage nonetheless has magnified cultural tensions and functions as a pilot from which to birth later success, perhaps when she runs for a second term. The only eventuality that damages the Russian cyber soldiers and their commander-in-chief is the fourth, in which, in real time, the cyber attackers are unmasked by a vigilant intelligence community, condemned by those in both major political parties and around the world, characterized by the media as spies and saboteurs. The Russian message is blocked or labeled as Russian propaganda, and when included in media accounts, the stolen content is relentlessly tied to its Russian origins and sources. None of that, however, happened. Instead, to the surprise of the Russian masterminds, as well as both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, he won the Electoral College and with it a four-year claim on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Although countrywide she bested him by almost 2.9 million votes, he unexpectedly captured an Electoral College majority by running the table. By the end of the evening of November 8th, Florida, as well as Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were in his column. The ways in which Russian hacking and social media messaging altered the content of the electoral dialogue and thus contributed to Donald Trump's victory are the subjects of this book. To begin my exploration, this overview chapter will highlight key findings of the U.S. intelligence community, preview my focus on the hackers and trolls and the synergy between them, justify casting the Russian machinations as acts of cyber war, outline ways in which susceptibilities in our system of government and media structures magnified their effect, and note five presuppositions that will shape my analysis of the Russian trolls' work, and one that will guide my study of the effects of the hackers. Forming the backdrop for my inquiry are three reports on the Russian intervention of the 2016 presidential election. The October 7, 2016 statement jointly issued by the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Election Security. The January 2017 conclusion of the U.S. intelligence agencies, CIA, FBI, NSA, and the February 2018 Robert Mueller indictment of 13 of the Russians allegedly behind the social media intrusions. On a day that will live in campaign lore, as much for what didn't happen as what did, more on that in a moment, the first of the three revealed the following. The U.S. intelligence community is confident that the Russian government directed the recent compromises of email from U.S. persons and institutions, including the U.S. political organizations. The recent disclosures of alleged hacked emails on sites like DCLeaks.com and WikiLeaks and by the Guccifer 2.0 online persona are consistent with the methods and motives of Russian-directed efforts. These thefts and disclosures were intended to interfere with the U.S. election process. Such activity is not new to Moscow. The Russians have used similar tactics and techniques across Europe and Eurasia, for example, to affect public opinion there. We believe, based on the scope and sensitivity of these reports, that only Russia's senior-most officials could have authorized these activities. That's from the report. The next report put a name to one of those senior-most officials and specified an intended beneficiary, Donald Trump. Cyber War is the book. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma. What's on your mind today? Hi, Hi Tom. First, these representatives in Congress and the senators who are talking about how Putin is a good man and talking about... Yeah, where is their money coming from? We can't find out. Until we have a Congress that works for the people, we are done. You know, Richard was right about that. But we can't even get, you know, 
what can we do to stop this? The only thing I can think of is try and buy stuff from small stores and put a stop to the profits. We don't know who owns the corporations. We don't know how much of our money every every day is leaving this country and supporting these people. Right. And we need to be able to put a stop to what these Putin supporters are doing because, you know, right now Russia is not an official war enemy, and so it's not legally treason. But what they are doing is willingly, knowingly, and deliberately supporting uh, a, a bad country that we should have declared an enemy. And I don't know how we can get this done, but right now I think that we need more sanctions on Russian businesses here in the States and maybe start seizing Russian property here in the States, and maybe that will make them wake up to the fact that they are supporting the wrong side on this. Yeah. I, I think the starting point here, uh, uh, Norma, is is getting money out of politics. The poison, yeah. the, the absolute, the, the moment America first got their first small dose of venom, of poison, was in 1976 with the Buckley versus Vallejo decision by the Supreme Court declaring yeah. that, that uh, campaign contributions were free speech. Two years later, you know, the decision written by uh, Lewis Powell on the Supreme Court, the First National Bank versus Bilotti, uh, First National yeah. Bank of Boston versus Bilotti, um, that I extended teach. it to corporations. Yeah, and then Citizens United in 2010, of course. And that's what, that's the stuff that we've got to blow up. And we need to, and Norma, thanks for the call. We need to move it back to the front burner. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor O'Reo, and Kearney Verde. The folks who helped bring this show to you, thank you to all of you. And thank you to you for watching, listening, sharing our show with other people, sharing us on social media, getting the good word out. We really appreciate it. It means a lot. So get out there, get active, tag your it. Be good to yourself and the people around you, and I'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.